0: Make a change for yourself, tell others about your change, and hopefully the message will spread.
1: Welcome to the Food Junkies podcast. Today we have well-known South African chef, Jono Proudfoot. Jono has trained and worked in a five-times-rated Top 10 restaurant and spent time at a variety of food and wine establishments before finding his passion in paleo and low carb, high fat cookery. He is co author of the wildly successful book, The Real Meal Revolution, as well as Superfood for Super Children and The Real Meal Revolution Low Carb Cooking. In today's episode, we discuss what banting is and how it has changed Jono's life, The Real Meal Revolution, and why it's been so successful in South Africa we talk about food addiction and compulsive overeating. We talked about kids and eating relatively sugar processed food free and so much more. Also, don't forget, there are still a few more days of the food junkies food addiction summit. So listen to this episode and then be sure to check out the final speakers of the month. Welcome O. Well, thank you so much for being here today. Jono, how has Banting changed your life? Like, how did you get to where you are today? Can you just kind of give us the story, how personal, professional collided? Yeah. Give us the details if you would. Nice
2: and open. Yeah, sure. So first, thanks, thanks very much for having me. I'm super excited. And my journey, I started off as a chef. And chefing was like the first thing I ever did that I was good at. I had like no self-worth in high school. My parents, like had a broken home, addiction in the family. And, and so I was like the drunk guy at school. And my mates actually like a nickname that I got from like the jock crew at school was trash. That was They were like, hey, trash. And it was like, and I even thought it was funny. I was like, cool. yeah, um, That's my nickname. And so when I learned to cook, I realized like, actually, this is something that I can do really well. And I got really good at it. And I was working in this amazing restaurant in South Africa, which is kind of what you would call like a Michelin star restaurant. I don't know if you have the Michelin system in in Canada, but it's top 10 restaurants in the country. And it was around about the same time this movement started with molecular gastronomy, which is where they started making like foams and airs and stuff with food. And they were getting all that technical And I remember in our restaurant brigade, there was this team that split and half of them were pro-molecular gastronomy and the other half were anti it. And I was anti it. I said, like, people still want to eat a real delicious meal. And so that was like the first part of my identity that was linked to like real food. And as my career progressed throughout my 20s, having believed in, in myself in the cooking space, I went back and I started doing stuff that I didn't think I could do because I had now learned how to do something good. So I I studied accounting after I failed maths in high school and I got a degree in accounting, I started training again when I hadn't really done any exercise since about the age of 14, I ran a half marathon, I ran, and then I started doing Ironman triathlons and I did a very famous swim in South Africa, which was from the prison on Robben Island, where Nelson Mandela was in prison, and we swim from that island to Cape Town, which is seven and a half kilometers in like 11 degrees Celsius water. So it's a very tough swim. And so throughout my 20s, I was just kind of like growing this career and kind of like rebelling against my teens, where I was this trash guy. And I basically finished my degree and went on sabbatical in 2012. And I left my girlfriend at the time back in Cape Town, but I spent some time just thinking about what I wanted to be when I grew up. And while I was there, I decided like I'm passionate about sports, I'm passionate about human performance, and I'm passionate about real food. And what I really want to do is like optimize the human condition through food. And so... At the time, I was like broke and unemployed. So it wasn't like a real sabbatical. It was like a, <laughs> <it's> just unemployment. <laughs> 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 and so I, I reached out to people and another mate of mine, he was in the same position as me. And we thought, okay, well, while we're not doing anything, we had mentioned doing the swim from Mozambique to Madagascar in the past. And we said, while well, we're like scraping the barrel, let's just do something so that we feel useful. And then one day if we find something else to do, we'll, we'll do that. And so I started emailing, People about the swim, and my girlfriend at the time had lost a lot of weight following Tim Noakes' diet. And for those of you who don't know, Tim Noakes, famous sports scientist in South Africa, and I'd read a book about his swim, about work he did with another swimmer whose name was Lewis Pugh, and he swam in the North Pole. He swam a kilometer in like minus one degree water temperature. And Tim Noakes actually studied. And he had this unique condition called anticipatory thermogenesis, which actually meant that when he was getting ready to go into cold water, he could raise his core body temperature. Mm -hmm. So he would raise his core body temperature like 39, 40 degrees and then get in the water, which obviously gave him like a head start in the swim anyway. And so I thought, okay, well, we want to do the swim from Mozambique to Madagascar. Tim Noakes just come out with this amazing diet that he's like campaigning for and it's helping people lose weight and he's a sports scientist so it must help people perform better athletically and maybe he would like to be involved in our swim and research us while we follow his diet and while we do this big swim so I reached out to him and one thing led to another we ended up producing this book and a portion of the book went to raise money for the charity that I was swimming for and then after that happened I, st- I launched this website to put the errata on the site because we pushed this book out like so fast it took us 63 days from the day we started writing to the day it went to print so it's like crazy absolutely outrageous but with that we we're like a ton of errors and so yeah, i was riddled with mistakes so i put all the mistakes up on the website and about three or four months later the book was number one on the charts in south africa it spent 36 weeks at number one on the nielsen bestsellers list in south africa so just to give you an idea of what that means like it sold more copies than Harry Potter in South Africa. It was massive. So we started getting lots of emails through and people like asking for tweaks on the diet. And so we launched this online program, but which I'm sure we'll talk about. It, but just to give you the, like how it all came together for me was that we had, I had taught people how to cook because I wrote all the recipes in the book. And Tim Lokes had done all the science in the back of the book. And uh, Sally Ann Creed, the nutritionist, and David Greer, the adventurer, who worked with that, all played a role in producing this thing. But They all had their own careers. And my career to date was like I studied accounting, I worked in wine marketing, and I've done some random stuff. But for me, what I really realized is over and above real food, it's like my 20s tell a story of transformation and being one way where I had low self-worth and I felt like there was no hope to being confident and having achieved things and having self belief and believing anything was possible and i really felt that that is what is missing in many people who launch on a health transformation and so since having that realization my focus has shifted totally towards transformation more than just like diet i think everyone knows that if you've lost weight and put it on It wasn't necessarily the piece of paper that was the problem. It was the approach. Often it is the piece of paper, don't get me wrong. (laughs) But you know what I mean.
0: Yeah, so talk to us a little bit about what is the real meal revolution. Like it's interesting for you to know, here in Perry Sound, in a small northern town in Ontario, there is a cardiologist who gets everyone to buy this book. It's like in all our bookstores. Everyone talks the Banting diet. And for me, even working in the field, it was somewhat a new concept for me, the Banting diet. So can you give our listeners like a bit of the history of what the Real Meal Revolution is based on Tim Noakes' diet and how you guys came up with using that or?
2: Sure. So Banting is, so I'll tell you the story about how like Banting became the word. So look, Tim Noakes, how his crusade started is he promoted like the high carb diet for his whole career as a running guy. And then he wanted to lose weight for a conference he was going to speak at because he felt like he was 20 kilos overweight. And he got a marketing email that said, lose like, six kilos in six weeks or 12 kilos in 12 weeks or something. And he was like, this is crap. And then he opened the email and it was an advert for the new Atkins for the new you or something like that. And he recognized the scientist's name because one of the guys, Steve Finney had written a lot of sports performance stuff. And so he said like, this is actually a good scientist. Like I need to, maybe it's worth looking. Anyway, bought the book, lost a whole lot of weight. He lost like 20 kilograms in three months following this diet. But at the time he was the heavyweight scientist for one of the big insurers and very respected. And, and so anyway, so he had to change his mind in public because now it worked on him and he said, hang on, like, you know, you're supposed to eat low fat and he was eating like butter and cheese and he just shed all this weight. And so the diet that they pushed in the Atkins diet is a low carb, high fat diet, which is known as LCHF or keto or low carb. And so when he was out speaking, so he was on the speaking circuit from 2010 to 2013 when this book came out, and then a few years after that. But for the first three years, he was out there speaking about LCHF. So when we're writing the book, I was given the rules by the nutritionist, Sally Ann. Sally Ann was like, you are you the chef? These are the rules of the diet. So I said, great, okay. And then I was so confused by the rules that I asked Sally Ann, I said, can you prepare like a green and orange and a red list? And so in South Africa, in the early 2000s, the WWF, the World wildlife fund they launched a sustainable seafood initiative where they listed fish as green orange and red and what it did was empowered the public to start telling restaurants that they weren't going to eat the fish and i had this firsthand. i served a mussel cracker which is a type of fish mussel cracker dish and it was on the menu and all the like guests in the restaurant said dude you can't serve this this is on a red list and so like six or seven years later when we we're writing this book i said we need a red list and an orange list and a green list. anyway so we're writing the book and the editor comes to us and says, look, John, LCHF is not a cool word at all. It sounds like a chemical. We can't put this in the book. So I said, okay, cool. What, like, maybe we can use Banting because Prof Noakes had written a whole piece about William Banting, who was a very wealthy British undertaker in the 1800s, late 1800s. And he was so overweight that he was going deaf and he had to walk downstairs backwards like in terrible shape. And um, he got put on this kind of like, semi-low-carb diet. It's still included like sherry and stuff. So it's like semi-low-carb. But anyway, he lost a ton of weight and he got super excited. He launched this diet book called The Letter on Corpulence. And it was like an international bestseller throughout Europe. And so he was the very first guy to launch a diet book in the late 1800s. And it was so popular that in like the 1920s, the word banting was interchangeable with the word diet. So people used to say, oh, no, I won't have the cake. I'm banting." And so anyway the editor says to me we need a cool word and straight away i just said we're calling it banting." so a lot of people have written articles in south africa on the difference between like banting and keto and low carb and like the only difference from our perspective is the spelling they're like the exact same thing so the rules of banting are well i've got seven principles and basically the first four are what you don't eat so you don't eat high carb foods you don't eat sugar you don't eat gluten and you don't eat seed oils. So these are puffers, potty unsaturated fats, oils high in omega-3, processed seed oils that are refined and bleached, go through like a chemical processing thing, uh, chemical process. Then the sort of fifth rule is, is to stay away from processed foods as much as you can. So it's to eat foods that are as real and as whole as possible. And the levels of processing, you know, there's like, for instance, like tomatoes, you get like a whole tomato, and then you get italian tinned whole peeled tomatoes which are like semi-processed but to be honest the, in south africa especially the tinned tomatoes are usually better quality than the raw tomato because they pick them green and then they don't ripen them properly on the shelf so you're actually getting like a higher nutrient density and a better tasting tomato from the tomato and then obviously the ketchup is like your highly processed tomato that you would just never want to touch and so there are like levels of processing and we encourage people to eat as real as possible and then the the last two principles of dancing are uh what i call no sneaky sneaky so sneaky sneaky is like this rule that we use to explain like pseudo health so there are a couple examples like vegan i have no problem with vegans or the vegan movement as a whole like that's cool if you want to not eat that's fine i get it but because something's vegan often people just think it's healthy and like the classic examples like a vegan nut seed bar which is like nuts set in like caramel or honey And then people will like eat that and think it's healthy. So we're like, no sneaky, sneaky. Don't fall victim to like fake health words. High in protein on a bar often means like high in sugar and carbs as well, like a health bar. And if you flip the label, you'll see like a thousand ingredients. Like that is not a healthy food. So no sneaky, sneaky. And that also explains why some foods, for instance, the green list is low carb foods and the red list is like high carb foods, but like Coke Zero, for instance. I don't know if you get Coke Zero, like no sugar Coke. Like coke zero that's not a health food okay so that that's on the red list because it's like sneaky it's like there's no sugar but like come on <laughs> like, that's not a food and then the final thing is practicality so what we had was in south africa because it was like this cult a lot of people started they had their own like facebook communities and in their own communities they were obviously discussing different ingredients because we weren't speaking to like absolutely every single person and we couldn't answer everyone's questions so they were having their own discussions about which food should go on on which list And a lot of this stuff was weird like if you look dried oregano has got like 60 grams of carbohydrates per 100 grams so that would be like a high carb food but like you're only going to put a teaspoon or half a teaspoon over a whole meal and so if you were following the rules blindly you would put oregano on the red list and then like deprive the whole world of dried oregano and like and then the other my other favorite example is like apples have the same carb count as onions and so like onions you're going to put like one onion in a sauce and it's going to be divided by four portions so we would say onion is essential for flavor and stuff and that should go on the green list but like apples you're just going to pick up the whole apple and smash it in which case that's going to push your carbon up so the seventh principle of Banting is practicality like just be practical use your mind to think about like the rules and the idea is that if you eat off these lists You shouldn't need to track your carb count and stay under a certain amount of carbs per day. You should just, if you follow the green list and you eat mostly green, you should just be able to keep your carbs low and be like relatively keto or or low enough carb to enjoy delicious foods and lose weight, reverse type 2 diabetes, high blood pressure, and a whole lot of other chronic health conditions.
1: Yeah, so I mean, I think you used the word it like cult. It kind of became cultish, you
2: know. And and <laughs> yeah. here,
1: so we've we've interviewed Dr. Saivez. We've interviewed. Well, you're here. We've interviewed Karen Thompson. We'd love yeah. to get Professor Noakes. So that's just my little shout out there. But why do you think Real Meal Revolution has been so successful in South Africa, and it's starting to be more popular all over the world? And clearly, we have several superstars coming from your area of the world. So what do you think? is the driving force behind that
2: i think uh, Noakes has a lot to do with it because tim Noakes was he was really famous he's the kind of guy who when anyone needed to ask a question about sport every news channel would want to get Noakes's opinion because he already broke like before this whole diet thing came out he was always controversial and he used to say you know i look for the paradox And then I I go and and investigate it. And so like, there were a whole lot of uh, rules in rugby that he challenged. And South Africa is a massive rugby nation. And people thought he was a heretic. And what he was going against was, there was a way that we scrum and it was causing neck injuries. So guys used to break their necks often in rugby. And like, I wasn't allowed to play rugby until I was 14, because my parents wouldn't want me to break my neck. That was kind of understood. And he challenged the rules to make them safer. And at the time, there were some famous South African rugby legends, you know, like Tom Brady or Wayne Gretzky kind of level people. And they just said, Tim Noakes is an absolute heretic, like he's completely nuts. And so he he won. And he did this over and over again with about six different other things. He did one in hydration and a few others. And so he was already hugely famous. And so when he changed his mind on carbohydrates, everyone who followed him was typically like interested in sport and also South Africa is very, well, at least the very educated people in South Africa super sport focused and we're actually quite a healthy, healthy nation. And so I think when he changed his mind and then he had an amazing looking product, like I don't know if people are going to see the video of this or the audio, but like the book is a red cover with like a fist on the front. So the South African edition, this is what it looked like. So it was like a fist holding a knife and fork. And people wanted to have that in their kitchen. You know, it was like you brand your kitchen, like I'm part of the movement, like I'm with notes, basically. So I think that turned a lot of heads and created a lot of movement. There is a conspiracy that I have, and that is that at the same time in South Africa, I should genuinely believe this. It is conspiracy, but I believe it 100%. So I don't know if you know that we have a political instability here. And there was a president that we had previously called Jacob Zuma, who just like, Just took all the money basically. And, um, but he also owned one of his mates, owned like one of the most popular newspapers in Cape Town. And Cape Town is the food epicenter of South Africa. So people come from all over the world to eat at our restaurants and everything. And so, whatever Cape Town's doing with food, the rest of the country follows. Now, this newspaper called the Cape Times was owned by the political party that was in big trouble for like stealing money. And it was a national election year, the year this book took off. And so every time the president, who was naughty, was in the newspaper, this other paper didn't have any way of selling newspapers because their front page was always something boring that no one wanted to read about because like there was filth on the president on all the other papers. So Tim Noakes was on the paper, the front page of the paper, like twice a week for a whole year okay (laughs) and so every time he said anything because he said so many crazy things he was like when you're eating lamb chops we eat a lot of lamb in South Africa he said when you're eating lamb chops and they're very fatty cut off the meat and just eat the fat he said that on like national tv then he said you should put butter in your coffee instead of uh, low-fat milk just and it was like consistent so every couple weeks he'd say this and then boof, he's on the front page of the paper and so what happened was people just had it on the top of their tongues all the time and there was no party you could go to where the conversation was not banting. but because it was such a big deal a lot of other people ended up joining forces so he had people just throwing him offers inviting him to talk and everything and so a lot of other people managed to start successful businesses with the heart of the low carb and sugar-free movement so for instance like karen thompson she was already thinking about doing a sugar-free addiction program but because the whole country had just been like made so aware of how bad sugar was. She started it. And then because Tim was on, on such a mission, he partnered with her and helped her promote it. So it was, you know, and I had a similar case like that. And a few other people had these just opportunities to serve a market that was desperate for more content and service in that space.
0: We're kind of hoping to start that like revolution here in some way. It's definitely yeah. not. It has not caught on yet. We are still <laughs> the outliers. We are still like these wackos over here, they eat like real food. So I love to hear that it was so successful there with Mm. it being so successful. Did you guys receive pushback? Like, obviously we know the Tim notes story when he first came out with some of these ideas, Mm. did you guys receive pushback on the book at all or haters or people trying to slag you off?
2: I actually have to spare a thought for Tim here because we weren't actually, he wasn't ever my, my business partner, but he, we had a deal where we supported his foundation and we used his image in marketing, you know, like a endorsement type thing, collaboration. And so actually a lot of the people thought that he owned my business. And because of that, like he got grief about like a lot of my marketing and I got away like unscathed as did many others. So, so he basically carried the rap for the whole movement. And the other thing about banting, which helped and didn't help. I mean, it didn't help in terms of business, but whatever, but it really helped in terms of movement is that banting is someone's name. And so no one is allowed to own the word banting so you couldn't put like banting tm on a product or whatever and because of that everyone labeled everything with with banting and everyone had their own definition as well like over the road from my house there's a restaurant that serves a banting pizza with like preserved fig on it which is like figs cooked in sugar syrup. It's like, you know, everyone's just like, oh, well, if, it's, if we put Banting on it, like, someone will eat it. But the point is, I didn't get much pushback. I think the pushback actually came from inside the Banting movement, which was quite sad. So there was a lot of politics around, like, who owned rights to what. And so, like... There were a few people, there was like a lot of in fighting for a period around like 2015 because people wanted to capitalize on, on the movement. So as far as pushback from the outside came, there was one instance when we launched this kid's book. So the first book, my author, co-author, Sally Ann, she was a, a nutritionist. She wasn't a registered dietitian. And so the dietetics fraternity in South Africa had a big problem with Tim partnering with someone who wasn't like a registered whatever. And then when we launched Raising Superheroes, this kid's book, which in Canada is called Superfood for Super Children. Our co author was a pediatric dietitian. And so, like, a few people wrote articles to the press like defaming our book. And then we just realized they hadn't read the book or even looked at it. They'd just written about how bad it was without looking at it. Because they said in the articles, like, she's not even a dietitian. She doesn't know what she's talking about. And actually, it was. So, and then as the chef, I think I'm just not a threat to anyone. You know, i am just fly below the radar. They're like, well, this chef's not threatening us. So, or whatever but i have the freedom to say i don't really know what i'm talking about but here's a whole lot of stuff i believe and <laughs> they can't really say anything to me because i can't get struck off a roll or anything
1: no that's you know i think we have experienced a lot of pushback from the medical profession mm. Mm. not necessarily in the big scary way that we know like tim noakes and gary fetke and amongst mm. others have gone through but certainly not only the medical profession, but also registered dietitians who are very much in the eating disorder camp and all foods fit for all people and all things in moderation, which I think is part of, you know, and then they get a lot of their money from big food. You know, they're, they're funded in a lot of ways by big food. And so their education is given to them by big food. So, I mean, I think that's part of why it hasn't grown quite as quickly mm. here as maybe you guys have. Certainly we, it would be awesome to have like our champion as well, but that brings up a really good point. Like you said, like professor Noakes, like really taking the brunt of that pushback. Mm. So what was it like to partner with him in the way that you did? What did you take away from that? I mean, that partnership, if you will, in supporting his stuff and, and him supporting your stuff. What can you tell us about that experience?
2: Well, wow, quite a lot in terms of, I mean, subsequently, you've read books about, you know, driving a movement and everything. And, and I don't know if he planned it strategically, but he he really was a figurehead and he did drive the movement. So I think, you know, working with Tim was was amazing because he was such a weird combination of so introverted, actually, on like a one-on-one interaction level and quite like shy, actually, and non-confrontational. But if you give him a crowd, he just turns into like a completely different like electric person. And I learned a lot about public speaking from him and really, really taking an interest in in teaching people. And in the beginning, you know I used to give him his like intro talk, And for me, it was very much about me you know being on the stage and enjoying having people watch. But what Tim taught me about speaking is just how, your ego has to completely disappear and you have to be there to serve the audience. And I genuinely believe that, like when he is speaking and presenting, he's not even there. He's in the minds of people watching and and really helping like explain the concepts to them. So they walk away with, with knowledge. And I think because he behaves that way, people leave feeling really touched by what he said. I think like the other thing I've learned is that you, you have to be kind of fearless in a way, and he pokes the bear. So there were ways he could have gone about it without being crucified. And I think that he, I think whether it was conscious or subconscious, like there was some deliberate poking of the bear, like smacking the beehive kind of behavior. And so I kind of like learned, watching what happened that, you know, whatever people say in the press or whatever, there's very little that actually hurts you because when you're being polarized, the people who weren't going to like you anyway are just going to like you less. But the people who were going to like you are going to like you more. But again, like none of that was just for the sake of what it was. He genuinely believed in what he was doing. And so this kind of ties into the last part of the question, which I didn't finish answering, which is that even though he's able to convince people and really like make an impact, it's because what he was saying was true. Like, and so... There was a lot of pushback from the medical fraternity. And I, you know, I chatted to a doctor over the weekend. It was kind of like, you know, and cholesterol, it's bad for you and whatever. But all of these people are getting their patients coming back to them and having their cholesterol checked and stuff. And they are listening to Tim, following his advice, and then going to their doctors and showing the doctors the results. And the doctors are like, oh, so you took the statins and you followed that diet I gave you. And they said, no, actually, I bought Real Meal Revolution. And I've come off all my diabetes medication and reversed my blood sugar issues and lowered my blood pressure. And it was from not following your advice. And like, that is something for a doctor to hear. And, you know, and then they need to question themselves. So I think he had this perfect balance between letting nature run its course and provoking the right amount to stay like in favor. It's really hard to explain because it was a deeply complex situation where there was a lot of like natural force carrying things along he rode that for, I think, like a solid three or four years. So yeah, it'd be great to replicate that, but it also fitted into something that, that South Africans needed. We need solidarity, especially when it's politically rough, like a World Cup rugby win for us brings the whole country together. And during that, that period where there was so much political uncertainty, having like this thing to hold on to kept us together. And he, he is a great South African, and he waved the flag high, and he would often talk about South Africa and what it means for South African health to take this seriously. So it wasn't just about him like, getting his point across. He said, you know, we are in the top 10 sickest nations in the world. In fact, I think according to one scorecard, we were the unhealthiest nation in the world. And he said, if we can get this right and financially viable way of doing this for the poor, we could improve everything in the country just by having a healthy populace, and that that gives people hope. You know, it keeps people inspired. So yeah, I think if there was one takeaway, it was to see how to engage people in the bigger picture and what's really possible.
0: Yeah, that's great. Kind of more a macro approach and mm. public health approach, which oh, I love that. That's just so yeah. inspiring. <laughs> So we're going to switch gears a bit and we're going to talk about, obviously, you know, it's great. We come out with this book and it's here's all the rules. Everyone should be able to do this. Uh Uh-oh, there's a group of people that just can't get it right. And what happens for us and what we know is there may be some aspects of food addiction, compulsive overeating, sugar addiction. So on your website, I saw cheating on our banting meal plans is an addiction relapse. And as with any other addiction, we need to address the underlying emotional problems if we want to move forward. So what made you believe that food addiction existed? And how do you work with individuals who you know, have this addiction?
2: Yeah, fantastic question. So I don't even know where to start with this because I had like a warped relationship with alcohol and I had addiction in my family so my mom was addicted to opiates when I was growing up and so like the addiction lexicon and like the sort of narratives very fresh in, in my mind and I feel as though it's the same you know it's binge restrict briefly from anxiety. And then usually there's emotional and physical cravings, followed by some kind of trigger and then a binge again. And then there's like this dip in self-worth. So there's this like binge cycle just going around all the time. And I think first it first reared its head in in about in mid-2014. So there was about six months after the book came out and we had people were just going crazy saying, oh my goodness, I've lost so much weight. We had guys who'd lost Fifty kilograms, eighty kilograms. Are you metric or imperial in Canada? Metric.
1: We do pounds. (laughs) Yeah, you (laughs) you have a mixture of both. Yeah, Yeah. I'm in the US. So yep, yep,
2: yeah. Yeah. Okay. So like, what eighty kilograms, like 160 pounds, basically a lot of weight. And people were coming to us then and raving about it. So you can imagine we were like, we've solved the problem. This is it. We're going to change the whole world. And then like six months later, early 2015. A lot of those people who had lost 100 pounds came back to us instead of put all on my weight back on. <laughs> You're like, oh, how, how did this happen? And that's kind of sent us on this journey. You know, first we thought they needed accountability, you know, almost like someone cracking a whip. And then it was like, they needed a better recipe. You couldn't figure it out. And I mean, obviously, we knew it was related to all of the stuff bigger than just like what the food was. So learning about the binge cycle and, and my own relationship with alcohol really helped me understand. Because I've been trying to quit alcohol from the age of about 19. And I was never like an alcoholic. People saw me. They wouldn't have said, like, John, is, that guy's a goner. They would say, oh, he likes to binge, you know. And so actually, I eventually did quit about Four years ago uh, or five years ago and i remember my wife being so upset with me because we were foodies and our whole marriage was forged on like food and wine and what i realized after when i was quitting that time having quit like 10 times before was that for me to actually quit to make it last it wasn't about willpower it had to be about a shift in identity and really like reshaping how i engage and how i experience pleasure how i socialize And how I do all these, you know, how I go about my life. And what I realized was that my experience with alcohol was so parallel to other people's experience with food, where I used to reward myself for not drinking during the week by having like a big night on a Friday. And I noticed this behavior with my clients as well, where they would say, it's my birthday today. So I'm going huge. I'm having like a pizza or something. And I just remember thinking like, it's totally not the right response. So we need to actually reframe. Of this, so the binge cycle really simplifies it, and there are some diagrams. I think I do a webinar on on a Wednesday night, which would be your Wednesday morning, where I explain how it works. But basically, you can follow any diet you like, and if you basically don't eat junk, you will lose weight and be healthier maybe not as much or as fast, depending on what you do. But you won't keep it off unless you address that part of the picture, and that often requires like real deep introspection, really understanding like. What triggers you? Okay, temper tantrums from my children trigger me. And then you have to go in deeper and say, well, why, even when I'm triggered, do I eat food? Some people get triggered and they lose their temper. Other people get triggered and they go and drink. Well, why is it that they eat food? And you need to explore like, where your relationship with food as something that you soothe yourself like stems from. And you can only solve these problems if you understand them. And so I started running mindset workshops for all of our members about three years ago. And I just spoke about the stuff that I'd used to heal my relationship with alcohol. And I tried to put it into the right context with food. And then I had Bridget, our dietitian, my co author on superfood, running dietitian's workshops. And I was desperate to launch my mindset lectures as a a program where we have people in and we do workshops, but then we do the stuff. You don't just sit and watch me do a workshop. We actually do the work, we write the notes and we do the exercises. And I just couldn't, I just never got it together. And then I had one day just randomly, I had a psychologist email me and her name was Victoria. And she said, I love what you do. I'd love to, to join you. And her brother is a researcher who researched under Tim Noakes. So their whole family is like keto mental. And she actually worked as the psychologist on Karen Thompson's first sugar addiction program, also in Cape Town. And so I said to her, cool, we don't have any job offerings for you, but why don't you join in on my like, lecture circuit and you just start running a lecture and you can talk about whatever you like, as long as it's about eating psychology. And so she put together this series of 12 eating psychology workshops. And my clients started going to her workshops more than they were going to mine, going to her workshops more than the dietician's workshop. And now these workshops on a Friday are like sometimes 50 people in a Zoom room just listening to her like go through this presentation. And so what I've ended up doing is partnering with her and we've developed the Eating Psychology Online Transformation Program. And that is designed to heal your relationship with food. So the normal members, they just attend a 40-minute workshop and they learn a concept People on the eating psychology program do hectic stuff. So they get like the insights and they do the lectures, but then they have to do really intense homework that digs down to the bottom of their eating issues. And through this 12 week cycle, they heal themselves, really heal the relationship with themselves so that they are not triggered and not compelled to soothe with food. And if you're not triggered and you're not compelled to soothe with food, even if your whole world falls apart. You're not gonna find yourself wrapped in a blanket eating ice cream, you know, <laughs> in the middle of the night. So this is like by far the most excited I've ever been about my career. i like, I wanna sing from the, <laughs> the hilltops about it. It's so cool. And so she's worked in addiction and counseling and she's dealt with eating disorders and everything. And this is like the culmination of, of all of her work. It's super cool. Yeah,
0: yeah it's like the magic sauce, right? What yeah. makes your program so successful. So how do you guys work with individuals around relapse?
2: Right. So compassion, obviously, is like the, for me, compassion is like the magic. And so compassion interests me because it comes from two sides. So there's a guy called Paul Gilbert in the UK, and he is a compassion researcher. But he originally researched it for sports performance. And I don't know if you're tennis fans over there, but Roger Federer is like the classic cool cucumber on the court and you never see him lose he went through a long period of like never getting angry but then you get a guy like andy roddick who's just fiery and like super fiery uses temper splashes the racket Always grumpy and so he uses this analogy and saying like the sports performance people who can forgive themselves for making a mistake the fastest are the ones who excel best because they're able to get back in the zone like heal the wound from the mistake they made in the past and then perform And so we think it's natural to berate ourselves when we make a mistake. And I I say it to myself when I make a mistake as well. I drop all kinds of swear words, tear myself to pieces, you pathetic idiot. How the F can you make this mistake again, et cetera. And so reading Paul Gilbert's research really opened my mind to how we can help our clients. And what they said is that we are all children. We all have an inner child. And actually... Our entire identities are shaped around what we can do to get love and feel loved, which stems right back to early childhood before the age of six. And so we do these behaviors to feel loved and connected, and accepted. And so the way that we talk to ourselves, we don't talk to ourselves as though we are the inner child. And so what happens is, if you make a mistake and then you you shout at yourself, you create an association between failing and feeling pain, right? And so if you think about doing this thing again, you almost don't want to try again because of the pain you've experienced from shouting at yourself. Whereas if you think about a child learning to walk, if the child falls over, the last thing on earth you're going to say is, pick yourself up, you stupid idiot. (laughs) You're never going to say that to a child. Instead, you're going to say, come on, you can do this. Oh, oops, you know, and come on, get up. You can do this, you can do this. And so if you try and speak to yourself like that, you just get over all that trauma um, so much so much uh, quicker and it's less traumatic. And so because you don't have this pain from failure of like being so hard on yourself, you're actually more courageous and willing to try and make mistakes because the fallout if you make a mistake is just like, all right, pick yourself up, let's go again. So that is like the key. I mean, there are many different things we'll talk about, but like compassion and compassionate language to yourself. Is paramount. You have to be kind to yourself. You don't even have to like yourself, but you can be kind to people you don't like. And so even if you don't like yourself, you can still be kind.
1: I'm like over here getting teary and like all the things, because just to hear that you've incorporated that into your program is amazing. I am a dual licensed mental health and addiction counselor where I live. And Clarissa and I are actually running a research group right now with Jen Unwin out of the UK. And then we have a team in Sweden and we're like the North American team. And one of the modules that I do is on increasing self-compassion. And it's based on the work of Kristen Neff out of the U.S., but certainly that's it right there, right? Is like, I've never met anybody who has bullied or shamed or beaten themselves into health and wellness or (laughs) recovery, right? Like that's in all my years of doing this since 2005, I've never met that client that's walked through my door That has like run themselves into the ground so much so that they've just like, (laughs) you know, all right, that's it. It's over now. And so, you know, and then hearing you talk about compassion and just in my mind going so many people balk at that word of surrender, but that compassion and surrender really are very similar in like, just like, yeah, it's okay. You messed up. Mm -hmm. Right? Something's happened, that radical acceptance or something. So, when we talk about like listening to passionate people speak, I mean, I think you are one of those people. You like, I wish I could explain the feeling that I'm having right now in my chest. It's just so, it's amazing to hear you talk. And see, you know, I guess my question to you then is before people kind of get funneled over and maybe they're self funneling over into these other programs with your psychologist, but before that happens, do you ever run into, clients or working with people where you're identifying like some of those addictive eating patterns or thinking behaviors? And if so, can you kind of talk about what are the red flags that maybe you need to direct them in that way that maybe they need that other program if they haven't found it for themselves yet?
2: Yeah. So that's a lot of questions actually. So
1: (laughs) it's the therapist in me. I just have to know.
2: Yeah, so originally, I have a coaching certification, and I used to coach people directly, but they would come to me having already identified, you know the fact that they, I mean, they wouldn't come to me for me to teach them keto. Like I'm the chef, I have a dietitian who would prescribe them with the diet, so they would only come to me if, if they really recognized that problem in themselves. But I, I think like the key identifier is if you have tried to lose weight before and you have managed to lose weight. But then you've put it back on again during like a difficult time you know and you're battling to like get back on the bus then i would say that that's not a matter of biology it's not the diet's fault and there's some other stuff that is worth looking at i don't know if you know what the dunning kruger is The dunning kruger graph with where... okay so this is really interesting <laughs> this is where i am okay so Dunning-Kruger is like this, these guys did research on drivers and they found that people who were bad at driving thought that they were experts and people who were really good at driving thought that they were rubbish. And what they found is like the only people who've been driving for 30 years who really were experts recognized that they were like kind of good, but they got the same score in confidence of driving as people who had only been driving for like six months. So I'm nervous about... You know, like two years ago, I would have spoken as I'm an expert on eating psychology. And now I'm like nervous because <laughs> I've learned like so much more that I'm, you know, attentive to it, but uh, how it works at Real Meal, maybe this is a better way of explaining it, is that we have a we have a standard online course where you take, it's a 12 week course and we've got lectures from all the, the good like keto guys and you sign up for that course and you get Free membership for another program we have called the Habit Building Program, and on this program you get the series of Zoom workshops, and there's a series of Zoom workshops with me. In. There's one with the dietitian, and there's one with Victoria, and like I said, those are hot on hop off. And in each workshop, we give people like a, a topic, and then we give them a list of things that they should ask themselves to see where they fit with a kind of soft diagnosis. And then we say, look, like if this is an issue, this is some more stuff you should read about. But I have stopped one-on-one coaching. And then what people will do is join, either be compelled to spend more time in in Victoria's workshops, working through the psychological stuff. But yeah, I don't have like a diagnostic sheet. I just assume that if you're battling, there's more to it than the meat and vegetables. Super long answer.
1: (laughs) No, I mean, I think that's important to hear though too, right? Is that it's kind of a moving target. And I don't think any of us is an expert. Again, I started in 2005 working in mental health and addiction. And I don't think that I'm an expert. Like I'm always, I, this is why I interview. <laughs> this is yeah. why I interview people because I know I'm not yeah, the yeah. expert. And I really like to defer to the client. They're actually mm. the expert in them. And so I think, you know, I think you're on to something with kind of saying like, mm, I'm not entirely sure, but just having that curious mind right? Like, oh, if this isn't working for you, maybe there's something else going on that we should investigate. So we really want to talk about the children because we think it's really important. And like, I've been sitting here waiting <laughs> yeah. to show you that I also have the copy of that. Um, <laughs> and I, I told, I told my oldest daughter that we were interviewing you and she knows that I work with people with food addiction. And she wanted me to ask you for children, especially, is it better to avoid all sugary things or is some sweet stuff? Okay. How much is too much? What signs should the kids look out for that? Maybe they've had too much. And she's curious to know if your children eat this way.
2: Those are like the best questions I ever heard. Okay, so I'll tell you straight up, okay, that my biggest regret is leaving, we left a chapter out of Superfood for Super Children, and that was on mental health, absolutely necessary. And so when we wrote the book, we were being very authentic in that, like we wanted to show what the healthiest diet was for children. And from that perspective, if you eat that way you will be supremely healthy having said that i think the weakness in it is that there wasn't guidance on how parents should actually engage with this with their children and being a father and now understanding, understand so like i went for marriage therapy and and like it was the best thing we ever did and well marriage is like gross people look at us we like oh you know so, like stop you know like uh, you know it's that marriage is like delicious and it's because of this therapy and what we learned was that like everything that we experience comes from childhood and you know like my drive as an entrepreneur comes from having less than when I was a child my wife has problems with food which come from her mother and so like it's just so important to create a, a really safe space for children where they learn to relate with food so i think like the answer to the question like do my kids eat like this the answer is as often as possible but the truth is they also have like chicken nuggets and oven chips you know when the time is right they're gluten-free as much as we can but where we are very hard is that we don't ever want them to feel deprived at all because deprivation causes much more damage than like ketchup and a hot dog so and the thing is like I have seen people come through our program who have really, really, how do I say, like damaged relationships with food, who are obese and then they have to work through so much more stuff. And then I get people who just got overweight because they were like not paying attention, but they don't have any issues around food. They might have like, no one's got no issues, don't get me wrong. <laughs> and if you think like you don't have issues, you have issues. <laughs> um, but if you don't have issues around food, then it's just a matter of, biology you're like oh well these foods don't work for me i'll just change what i eat and and then i'll lose weight and so i'm happy for my child to like put on excess weight now if there happens to be a kid's birthday party like twice a weekend for six weeks in a row which is quite often the case we're not in the middle of a pandemic and she gets a little extra weight that's cool but we're not going to ever like fat shame her or like log her into a diet program and we're certainly not going to tell her at a party in front of her friends like don't eat the sweets you're getting chubby and our hope or our strategy is that when and if one day she does have a weight issue, that it's just a matter of saying, oh, well, you know, if you cut out these foods, then you lose weight. That's fine. And not like all the other stuff that that comes with it. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I imagine because you probably, as her parents, eat this way. That at home, that this way of eating isn't strange to her or isn't foreign to her. And that, you know, these kind of foods, you know, processed food, sugar, junk food is not constantly in the home or being consumed by you and your wife, which, you know, is teaching a healthier relationship with food as well. And I have to say I love the superfood for super children book because so many of my clients, you know, when they're first starting out on this journey, they've never cooked they've only ever eaten processed food. So this is the book I tell them to go to for simple meals for themselves, adults who are just starting on the basics and maybe not ready to cook with the more elaborate chefy meals that you have created in the real meal revolution. So I just appreciate it so much. So how do you help? clients like navigate the grocery shopping and the school lunches and these you know imagine you had a party at your house what kind of food would you offer like and what do you suggest for other individuals to try to do if they're trying to have help their kids eat cleaner food
2: so in terms of like menu suggestions so in south africa it's it's really simple south africans eat a lot of biltong which is like jerky Biltong is like, it's more savory. So we don't put, I think there's sugar in jerky. I've never actually tasted it, but, but we have biltong here, which is like dried cured meat. And so biltong and nuts are like the standard snack go-to. But then there's a lot of stuff you can serve that's totally cool, like fresh crudités, cucumber sticks. In fact, one of our local supermarkets, I should actually tell you like, bouncing was so huge in South Africa that, that the three biggest retailers brought out their own low-carb food ranges based on the basics section of real meal revolution so you can buy like the seed cracker recipe in the book you can just go into a supermarket and just buy a pack like that's not like you don't need like a health store so the low carb options are like easily accessible and i always tell people if you can't get low carb then at least try like sugar and gluten free as like the next best thing because i think a lot of people don't realize they're actually gluten intolerant a huge revelation for me was i used to bant you know five or six days a week and then have like a blast on the weekends that was the first like three or four years after the book came out and then i put gluten and then i still used to have like a sugar binge or whatever and i just couldn't put on weight so like the coming gluten out has healed my gut my skin is like super clear and i feel amazing all the time like my joints feel good and that's just from no like, gluten so so I've also told people to cheat differently. Like if you're going to break your rules, maybe have like a tighten the rules, but still allow, allow yourself an indulgence. So gluten-free for some people is, a, is like a soft cheat. But so back on point. So like meatballs, smoked salmon ribbons, asparagus wrapped in pancetta, like cooked in the oven with homemade mayo. That is like one of the best things you'll ever eat in your life. And then I do these uh, barbecue chicken wings. So there's like a spicy smoke. They're In this book, actually, in Real Meal Revolution, I think there's something similar in, in another one of my books. But basically, like uh, chicken wings, and you dust them in like really fine grated Parmesan with a few spices like smoked paprika and canned pepper and like sort of like smoky barbecue-type flavors. And you roast them. But you roast them for like ever. So the cheese actually becomes like a crust on the chicken and then you dip that in like a blue cheese and buttermilk dressing so like i think it's like a ranch ranch dressing like that is next level (laughs) yeah and then in superfood there's actually there are 10 double pages on lunchbox ideas with recipes so like chicken meatballs with pineapple and you know, I couldn't list them all now, but that section, the reason I'm so proud of it is because we wrote the section and then we photographed it. The photographs came out like average and I, and I read through all the recipes and literally like we only had a certain amount of days of the shoot and overnight we rewrote all of those recipes and we reshot that whole section. So you'll see if you go and look at those photographs, they are like incredible, incredible lunch boxes. And so everything in those lunchboxes actually doubles up as entertaining snacks as well. They're all finger foods because they're for lunchboxes. So obviously, like you don't need to cut the cucumber into stars because it's not for a child's lunchbox, but you'll get the idea.
1: Yeah, I appreciate that book so much. And I appreciate that you guys consider the children and you realize the importance of, I mean, there's this whole prevention movement, right? If we can have these conversations with our children, if we can introduce and expose them to eating real foods and and in a fun way, right? They're more likely to... Want to be curious and try it out. And then hopefully they don't become, you know, and this is that always that fine balance with myself. I am a sugar addict and my husband is not. And then my children are in this home where, right, there's this (laughs) like they see how I eat, they see how he eats. And then it's this constant back and forth where at least this is a meeting in the middle where there's fruit and there's you know i think like at times your recipe will say like a, a little bit of honey or a little bit of this but never like in big quantities just enough mm. and so i i just so appreciate that because i am a firm believer in prevention so what's next for you so we've got real meal revolution you've got your rmr heroes program there's some podcasting happening what's next and how can our listeners find you
2: yeah thank you the next step at the moment is I, mean, I think if i had to choose like what i want the world to look like in 20 years time it would be that obesity is recognized as like you can solve the obesity problem with mental health treatment and not just food i think that's the that would be like me making a big statement so i think that's where my energy is going to go in the next while and i don't know how it will take shape I'm really excited about the partner program that we've developed with Victoria, the psychologist. It's a great model of support where we can have many people in a program to collaborate, but still get one-on-one attention. And so I think where I'll go is create more partner programs like this, uh, bringing in other experts. There's some people in the UK I'm speaking to about, I don't know if you've heard of functional imagery training. I actually interviewed a professor of psychology uh, last week, and she spoke about functional imagery training, which is like a tweak on motivational interviewing. And they found that through functional imagery training, they could get five times better results than they would get from motivational interviewing over a year. And that after the intervention, for six months, people continued to lose weight without any contact whatsoever, just because of the type of therapy they used, which linked people's values to their daily processes or daily habits. And so like for me, that's really powerful and I'd love to partner with them to bring them a uh, to bring a program to the public. So I think for now, like Real Meals, where it's at for me, I think Real Meal, as far as the internet goes, is definitely optimized for keto and banting. And even though I do love keto and banting, like I'm definitely more interested in, in real food. And so I may have to launch a new brand where like... Because the thing is, people who come to my site and they see an eating psychology program, they might think just because it's Real Meal that they have to be keto to be honest. And like, I want people to know that even if you're not keto, like you're still so welcome <laughs> like, to come and heal your relationship with food. And that's actually where, where my, my passion lies. So at the moment, you can reach me at realmealrevolution.com. And then I've actually, like, I've stopped putting my superhero podcast on the podcast. So now it's just like my Facebook page, which is The Real Meal Revolution. And I do like a live interview and you can go and watch the videos there. Just scroll down the feed. And yeah, I've got some interesting stuff. I spoke to the head of medicine from Liverpool Football Club like two weeks ago. He's a, actually an old friend. of so, so there's some interesting people coming through. And yeah, I think Victoria and I are talking about writing a book. And the book will be based on the eating transformation program that we're running at the moment. And so the programs we run at the moment are like a basic twelve week course where you get meal plans and recipes, which like ticks the nutrition box. We've got a web app where all of my recipes are hosted, and that's like it's like eighteen Canadian dollars or fourteen US dollars a month, and and you get like access to a meal tracking tools where you can like monitor your whole journey. And then we have this hero program, as you mentioned, and the hero program is oh, like it's my love child. So this program is like it's a 12 week or three month program where you meet in a fortnightly Zoom, which is facilitated by a coach. And it's it, you just share deeply. So you follow a sort of kind of script of questions which you have to answer, which are very coach like questions and you share into the group and then everyone else shares back feedback, and you just share experiences. And it's it's amazing to our workshop. You do that every two weeks for three months. And at the end of each workshop, you set a goal, but just for two weeks. So you're not setting like this ridiculous one-year goal where you like hold your breath and then you check in with each other every single day over WhatsApp. And that is like, that's super powerful program. So That's a hero program. We do one-on-one coaching, but it's more like one-on-one mentoring where our coaches have had a keto transformation. They're on our coaches and then they hold your hand through that and then the eating psychology program. So those are the things we offer. And you can find those all on our website at realmealrevolution.com.
0: We will link all that in the show notes as well. So everyone has access to them. We do have a signature question and it is, if you could tell a younger version of yourself something about sugary processed foods or food addiction, what would it be?
2: I would say that, so it's, it's very vague and cryptic but it's what you're looking for in the fridge or the cupboard is not in the fridge or the cupboard. It's, it's about what's going on inside. Yeah.
0: Oh, you so speak our language, Jono. I love it. <laughs> it's like, and you're a chef. So you love food, but you're like, it's, it's about the food, but it's not about the food. And that's yeah. exactly what we talk to our clients about all the time. So thank you so much for being here and sharing your inspiring message today. It's just So many takeaways from this and I know our listeners are definitely going to check out everything, everything Jono and Real Meal Revolution.
2: Yeah, I really appreciate you having me. Thank you so much. It's been, it's been awesome. Thank you. Yeah. And and thank you for all the work you do as well. Super inspiring.
0: Thanks for joining us this week on Food Junkies, Recovery from Food Addiction.